Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. Jordan trying to shake off starts. Oh, what a What's going on, everybody? It's Mike Guillory, and we are back with a new episode of the Sneaker History Podcast. Now, today we are doing something a little different. I have a special guest with me, and he has been around pretty much everything and everywhere in the sneaker industry. And if I, I want to be fair to say, I guess for the past 30 years or so, he has seen it all, or at least seen close to it all, and has a lot of stories, a lot of advice he can hand out to you. You know, people like me, Robbie, who are trying to get into the sneaker world, other people trying to get into the sneaker world and trying to get into that business. So without further ado, I want to introduce our special guest, Rob Purvey. How you doing, man? Hey, how's it going, Phil? How you doing? Man, I am doing good. Oh, doing great, doing great. You know, just trying to keep it all together while we're sticking indoors. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, man. So, shoot. Just go ahead. I want, I want to just let you start off. I know I'm, I'm going to ask questions here and there, but I want to let the world hear your story. So tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, just a quick little snippet. Sure. Um, I am actually I live in Los Angeles now. Um, this is actually my third time living in California. Well, living in different parts of California. And I'm originally from mm-hmm. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I had a very uh, kind of, you know, somewhat inner city, typical upbringing where I was very fortunate to grow up in a household that was very creative, focused on some core things that you needed to do or you just wasn't going to get to do anything. So, you know, it was about music, education, art, sports. And uh, that was the kind of the tenets of the things that we were all about. Um, you know, I was really fortunate to um have a good education and all of that type of stuff. However, I did grow up in a really, really tough city. So I think a lot of the things that maybe some folks have as far as what they stereotypically think of a Philadelphian definitely applies to me. But at the same time, I was raised in a very loving household. So love sports, love science, loved entertainment. And, you know, my friends and I, when we grew up, we really thought that we were like the African-American version of the Avengers. Okay. So that was nice. our dream. Nice. Yeah. And uh, we also, at, when I was really young, I wanted to be a scientist, um, mainly because a lot of the guys in Marvel Comics were scientists. I also wanted to be an astronaut because the first successful black astronaut is actually from Philadelphia. So that was that inspirational when I seen that was going on. I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to be, I, I just aspired on a lot of things. I wanted to be a football player first. I wanted to be a basketball player. I used to want to be a fireman. 
I mean, I had a very imaginative mentality. So taking that long story and making it short, um, played all of the, the standard basic sports that people from the East Coast, Mid-Atlantic area do when they're coming up. I'm a 60s born kid, so I actually have seen a lot. As far as basketball is concerned, I actually have vague memories of seeing Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain play. And uh, okay, yeah, so I've seen a lot when it comes to that. Uh, when I, I went to LaSalle University and um, I was really fortunate that a guy who was like a, a crazy hero for me when I was a kid because he was from Philadelphia as well. A lot of people may have done this, but this guy actually was a he played and grew up in Philadelphia, elementary school, middle school, high school, college and pro. And he ended up on the fixers as a pro. So not too many people get to play in their hometown. But the, you guys know who he is because his last name is Bryant. His first name is Joe. His son's name is Kobe. And um, I watched yeah. you hear man. So I watched his path and I was really admiring of the fact that he lifted his family up and moved to Italy and he used to come back. I figure you guys are probably um, familiar with a, a basketball league out here called the Drew League. And mm -hmm. yeah, the, original, yeah. the original Drew League or a model of that ilk came along in the 60s mm -hmm. called um, the Baker League, it was virtually the original version of that. So he used to come back every summer and play in the Baker League, and we would see him play, even though he was playing professionally in um, Italy after playing eight years in the NBA. So, you know, when I got out of school, I really was kind of lost for a bit, like a lot of people when they get out of school, because, you know, I wanted to play ball, but I did, I was at that level to do so. Um, after having several different jobs, I didn't have a career. I ended up working at Foot Locker, something I didn't want to do because when my cousin came to me and said, you know, you could come work at Foot Locker with me. And I was like, what you mean in the mall? I'm going to take a job in the mall. You must be tripping. <laughs> so I ended up going in there because I became a parent. And when you become a parent, you got to do what you got to do. And um, I, I, I worked really well. Like when I got there, things went really well. I started moved up to be an assistant manager really, really quickly. Um, this was during the explosiveness of the sneaker culture was when technology hit and it was all type of like crazy energy going on that I've never seen repeated like it was in that period of time throughout the mid and late 80s when the sneaker industry just went boom. And it was pretty much around the time that people no longer were wearing sneakers when they were doing athletic events or doing P.E. or anything like that. When folks started just wearing sneakers every day and really very rarely wearing shoes in that era unless you went to like church or got a wedding or a funeral or something like that. So I was all about that. Um, all of the different reps for the different brands used to stop by the Foot Locker we worked in because we were a very rare African-American Foot Locker in a city that's predominantly African-American because Philadelphia is one of the few cities in the North that has a very large African-American population. So I was meeting the different reps, you know, that would come to the store. My Reebok rep came to the store one day and said, I'm really here to say goodbye. Um, I got a job in corporate and I'll be, you know, in headquarters and I won't be traveling out here anymore. And I asked her, well, do you know who's going to replace you? She said, no, I have no idea. And I told her, which became kind of a humorous thing over time. I said, I think I have the aptitude to do your job. She laughed. She told them about it. When it was time to get interviewed, 
Um, I literally was like a cattle call because at this period of time right now, it's hard for people to believe because Nike is so amazing and so dominant that Reebok was actually very competitive. And occasionally, depending on what day of the week you check the stock market, Reebok was actually ahead of Nike. And Reebok actually was the mm -hmm. first brand to crack $1 billion, which no one would think something like that in this era we live in right now. So I was very relaxed when I went into the interview because I didn't think I would get the job because, again, I'm a mid-Atlantic guy. Um, in sports, we always have had a rivalry with Boston. Um, Boston has always had a kind of <laughs> reputation about how it is in terms of racism and things of that nature. So when I went to the interview, I was really relaxed. I said, I've never met anybody from a sneaker company before. So I kind of ended up turn, interviewing them as opposed to vice versa because I had never met. I, I didn't think I would get hired. And it was a shoe in that era that was coming out called the men's instructor. It was the men's fitness shoe because Reebok really exploded for women in terms of aerobic fitness shoes. And it was a woman's shoe, yeah, called instructor, yeah. but the men's instructor was about to come out. And one of the guys that was interviewing me, he had the men's instructor on. I had heard about it. I had seen pictures of it. And bear in mind, there's no social media or internet or anything like that in that era. Mm -hmm. and I said, do you have on the men's instructor? He said, what do you know about that? I said, I heard about it. I said, I also, <laughs> heard, I said, I also heard on the outsole of the shoe, it has a collapsible traction system. I don't know what a collapsible traction system looks like. Can you show that to me? And he took his shoe off. He showed it to me. And I said, oh, now I get it. I didn't realize that being so inquisitive about their brand locked me in for getting the job. So for about a year, a little bit more than a year, I was the the field service rep, a.k.a. tech rep. Um, Nike calls it an Eakin. Different brands have different names for it. And I was basically the guy that was the ambassador for the brand in a portion of the tri-state area. So I had Pennsylvania over to Penn State because I was living in Philadelphia. I had uh, Delaware. I had New Jersey. And when it was big events, I would help the people up in New York as well. So I did that job for a while. And okay. every time I went into corporate, at the end of the meetings, they would actually talk about the different opportunities that was within the office. And every time they talked about they were looking for people to move to Asia, no one raised their hand. And I raised my hand every time. So my boss at the time, who's still one of my closest friends, he said, um, you keep raising your hand, man. We're not talking about going over there for a visit. If you go, you have to commit to be there for at least 10 months before you come back for a, um, you know, to do a home leave. And my hand just stayed in the air. Again, long story short, <laughs> ended up, you know, getting that opportunity. Uh, I, again, I always had this kind of I'm a black man in a white situation because I wasn't seeing any other African-Americans in the industry, at least in my company at that time. And um, I said, yes. And they said, when do you want to go? And I found out later that the other people who were recruited to go over there, they this was toward the end of the year. They all went in January of the next year, which, you know, after the holidays and all. But I, I was thinking they may change their mind. I said, I can leave December 1. So I ended up spending my first trip <laughs> living in Pusan, South Korea with no family. And no one was there because when I went over there to join that office, the people who already worked there went back home for Christmas. So but I was Damn. there. <laughs> But I, I, when, when I got the opportunity, I was like, yo, they might change their mind. So let me just say I can go as soon as possible. So I didn't I learned later. They all laughed at me because I they, I was locked in. I could have waited and went in January, but it kind of helped me. So I was able to kind of be adjusted by the time everybody came back, you know, from holiday. Yeah. And, um, 
I was an assistant production manager where I literally was taught from scratch everything about, you know, making sneakers because I was the guy who was almost like the security guard while I was learning the process of building shoes. So after being there for about a year and a half, I got promoted and um, was moved to Bangkok, Thailand, where I became a full production manager. I lived in Bangkok and we actually okay. oversaw manufacturing in Indonesia. Um, did that for about two years. And after that, I was asked, you know, I told them that I wanted to move into product development because now I understood all of the disciplines of the industry. And I thought their product development mm -hmm. was just amazing. And they said, yeah, you can move to product development, but if you do, we want you to move back to the States because we're top heavy with talent in Asia and we need to balance things out in the U.S. So then I moved to this other foreign country called Boston, Massachusetts. And, <laughs> and I actually lived there for, uh, I was working with Reebok then, but in total, I was there for 12 years. So from 1991 until 1997, I went from being a development manager to eventually becoming managing co-managing director of worldwide product development. And that's when I really learned Asia even more than living in Asia, because we were then producing shoes in about 50 different factories up and down the entire Pacific Rim. So it was, it was, it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that Reebok gave me the opportunity to do because of my passion for sports and because so such a large percentage of professional athletes are African-American, they started letting me sit in in some of the meetings that only marketing people would be in because I could relate relate to people. So a lot of guys mm -hmm. that I worked with that were big time stars back in those days. But obviously, you know, you got to give Nike its props for being like a phenomenal storytelling company. So, you know, their dominance is obviously there. But if you go back and think about I worked with D Brown, who was the first guy to do a stunt in a dunk contest when he covered his eyes. I made those. Yeah. I worked with Dominique Wilkins. I worked with Mark McGuire. I worked with Allen Iverson. I worked with Sean Kemp. I worked with Shaquille O'Neal. And I could go on and on and on, but I don't like dropping names. So but <laughs> at the same time, I was still a product development manager in terms of what it said on my business card. But Reebok definitely allowed me to be involved and at least be in the room where other things would happen that normally product developers aren't there. So, you know, eventually I had an opportunity to join Adidas. And I was really struggling with it because I was really passionate about working at Reebok because we did taste being the biggest brand quite often during the time I was there. Yeah. And it was definitely a challenge living in Massachusetts in that time frame. But the immediate people that were around me, and I think a lot of times when it comes to entertainment and sports, is, is those challenges that we're dealing with in our country today, are those challenges real? They're very, very real. But I think in those two industries, Maybe occasionally the industries are maybe a half a step or maybe sometimes a full step ahead of society, because my friends that I made when I was living in Boston, they're still my friends to this day. So I, I went through a lot of stuff. There's no doubt about it. But I learned that me responding with my anger and me responding with, you know, it's almost like in basketball. When somebody fouls you real hard and you foul them back, the person who does the foul back is the one that gets the foul called. And I always use that sports mentality when it came to dealing with those type of challenges. So, you know, I joined Adidas and I was there for about two years or so. But during that time frame that I was there, we went from 2% market share in basketball to 10% market share in basketball. So it was, it was a great run. Um, it was a lot of challenges, but 
the positive thing was I got a chance to work with Kobe Bryant. I got a chance to work with um, Tim Thomas, with Tracy McGrady. Um, you know, it was a lot of guys, man. It was really cool. So we had a really That's great amazing. opportunity. But then I got pulled back. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So my career has actually been a combination of, you know, great corporate jobs, but also being involved with some pretty, um, I can't say successful, but with some game changing um, startups. Um, via Shaquille and my business partners at that time, we started the very first e-commerce sportswear brand ever. And that was a brand that was started in the late 90s. The ideation was like in the late 90s. We launched in the year 2000. We launched at the All-Star Game when Vince Carter won the dunk contest. So I know you guys remember that one because that was a big oh, time. Oh, what a time. <laughs> what a yeah, time yeah. to do it. Yeah, but we launched our brand and we were really the first brand to launch at All-Star because we were really, you know, we were strapped. We didn't have the big budget. And we felt if we're starting a mm -hmm. basketball brand, where how can we get the noise out there without having a multi-million dollar marketing budget? So we decided to launch the brand at All-Star Weekend and it worked out. And now I see a lot of people do things of that Smart. nature since then. And the brand was called Dunk.net. And mm -hmm. yeah, we had Shaquille O'Neal, um, several other athletes as well. We had Oscar De La Hoya. We had Mike Piazza, uh, Rebecca Lobo. Those were the athletes that we used to launch that brand, but we were literally the first to sell online. It, it, it definitely made a lot of noise in the tech space. We didn't make long-term noise because mm -hmm. if you go back to that era, the banks didn't have your back if you bought something online. And now that I look back on it, yeah. had, had we really thought it through, we would have realized that the market, that consumer for sneakers in that era was not a consumer who was comfortable buying products online and having it delivered to your house. So it was really funny because when I would be in yeah. like intense inner city urban situations, I used to be like, yo, dog, check it out. All you got to do is go online, look it up, look at your size, order it, and it'll come to the house. And people used to be like, what? Come to the house? You must be crazy. Nobody, nothing. <laughs> the house? I mean, this is like year 2000, 2001. So but but it definitely was a great experience. And eventually my ex-wife said to me, I don't know what you're trying to prove because you proved it, but we, we don't need to be eating these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches no more. You need to go back and get a job. So <laughs> I ended up returning to corporate because it was and again, a lot of times you'll hear people say, I, 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 they did this, they did that. A lot of times it's about the timing of where you go and being on a great team. I'm a team oriented guy because I play team sports. I think being on a great team is just as great as being a great individual because everybody says I did this and the media says this person. You think a lot of times that basketball is a one on one sport when they give credit to people who won so many championships. When I joined Van yeah. and when I joined Vans, it was amazing because the brand was starting to come out of a hole. And while I was there, we went from being a niche skate brand and also gave a little versatility to me because now I'm not just being looked upon as a dude that loves basketball because I really love all sports. Basketball just has more marketing popularity, but we became a very successful brand when I was at Vans. I was there for quite a while and uh, the brand, you know, it's just continued to race. It's never looked back since the time frame of when I was fortunate to be there and work with an amazing team. And I'm still friends with a lot of people there as well. And uh, unfortunately, basketball, it kind of tapped me on the shoulder again because this was in a period of time when and one was 
formerly a great brand and it was already sliding because it had new ownership. I happened to know the person who purchased the brand and his group actually somehow they convinced me to leave Vans and and I became the executive director of And One, was able to resurrect the brand for a while. And eventually I became brand president as well. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, wow. And uh, and after that, um, they actually got into new ownership. So I eventually moved on because the new ownership had a different vision because and one is still in existence. But it's basically what we call in the industry a downstairs brand because they sell the brand at Walmart now. And that's not really my background. Okay. And I respect yeah. it because that that part of the industry makes a lot more money at times than the actual more branded stuff. But it just wasn't my cup of tea. So I was very fortunate to. The, that same guy that gave me the first interview at Reebok ended up becoming the president of a footwear, a running shoe company called Hoka One One. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that brand, but oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I was in charge of product for Hoka One One for about two years, bro. And uh, it was that was a great run. And uh, as time went by, I really got pulled into the tech space again. And my current business partner right now, he is an amazing guy who is very versatile. He's a serial entrepreneur. We became really close as soon as we met. And he had this idea of creating an app that finds every public and private basketball court wherever you are in most of the world via a GPS type system. It was amazing. Um, he was trained in the military, so he knew how to do all of that. So there was no need for him to actually do some third outside sourcing because he was a code writer mm -hmm. and his business partner, who's now my business partner between the two of them, they write code themselves. So we created an app called Baller's World. And, you know, I oh, just kind of that's away, cool. went on my own. Baller's World still exists. Baller's World is now like a boutique, a boutique digital marketing firm that has a whole lot of different tentacles and different helixes that go all over the place. And then that, with that same business partner, we actually, took on a brand called TCG, which is Thoroughly Crafted Goods. TCG is basically a men's footwear brand that allowed me to actually adopt a new word that we've locked in called casualetic. Because I didn't want to say athleisure. We didn't want to say lifestyle. Everybody uses those terms. Those terms are kind of old now. But casual athletic, we just blended those two words together and call it casualetic. So these are some shoes that um, nice. if, if you're going to a job interview, you can wear them. If you're hanging out with your homies, you can wear them. If you are just, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, because, you know, we live in an era now where people actually get married in top notch sneakers. And that was kind of our inspiration. Yep. So TCGLosAngeles.com is uh, the website. Check it out anytime. I think you'll be pretty impressed. And we've kind of expanded. And we said, <laughs> We sell some other products outside of footwear on the site as well. So that kind of leads us up to really, really close to where we are today. I did that as fast as I could because it's a long story to go. Back. <laughs> it was good, man. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, I always say when you talk about the 80s, I said, you mean the 1800s? Because in the sneaker industry, the 80s looked like it was the 1800s. But it appears that more <laughs> and more and more as time goes by, the things that happened then, because everything kind of recycles. And I see a lot of uh, what mm -hmm. people, I know folks don't like labels, but to make a long story short, what people call Gen Z now, a lot of the things that they like are the same things that we like in the 80s, those who are yeah. hip mentality. You know what I'm saying? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm, sure. I'm working. I'm, I'm not I'm not working to stay relevant. I'm staying. I'm working hard to stay ahead of the curve. I don't change with the times. Yeah. I try to work to change the times. Nah, smart, because you don't get caught in those waves that, oh, this is cool. And you produce so much of X product. And now you're looking back when that that wave changes, like what I do with all this now. No one wants it. So that's, that's smart, man. Stay ahead of it. And you clearly from your story, man, have, have been ahead of the curve with, with everything from you know where you've worked at, the dunk.net, everything, man. Like this is amazing to hear the story. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, we still yeah. work so, now, man. You know, got yeah. some got some new passions now, actually. Nice. Hey, that's what that's what keeps it fun, man. You keep getting new passions, keep trying something, you know, harder than the last thing. So what where are you at now? So what what is day in the life of, of Rob Purvey look like in 2020? Um, well, a lot of it is helping to promote and push people that I've been really blessed to be able to um you know, guide or be a mentor for whatever the case may be. Um, I try to really not necessarily get too locked up in some of these words that I think are kind of dated now. But I, you know, I get calls a lot from people that heard about what I've done and who I am and uh, just try to do the best I can. They help. I learn as much from them as they learn from me. I'm actually a mentor teacher at a charter school here in Los Angeles that really fortunate that what we teach in the class is things about life, but primarily about um, entrepreneurship and the options of entrepreneurship. If you don't go to college, we really do push you to go to college. Most of the kids do go to college. Mm-hmm. We try to give them some of the tips, you know, things that you don't learn in school, but you should learn in school, you know, yeah. until, you know, like, yeah, like yeah. and I'll give you a great example. Like when I first got to college, because it's all you're always a mark when you're in college and the credit card companies attack you almost immediately and give you a credit card. But you might mm-hmm. not know how to really use a credit card. So we try to actually teach the mm-hmm. kids to be prepared for that, because who we teach are 11th and 12th graders. So they're just about to, you know, get their first real exposure to hard lock, you know, the hard life out there. So I. Yeah. I, I really like doing that. I like being around those kids. They keep me relevant because sometimes I'll actually come up with a new footwear idea and I'll show it to my son. And my son, who's 24 years old now, he'll go, Dad, that's whack. And I'll go, no, let me explain. He said, the fact that you got to explain should tell you that it's whack. I go, OK. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, the toughest critic right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I kind of trust <laughs> My son doesn't know life. He doesn't know life without footwear. So he's actually, I, I used to take him mm-hmm. to football presentations and he used to come hang out with me in the office. Oh, cool. And it got to the point where sometimes people would say, where is, where's your son? You didn't, I, I was bringing my son with me for my benefit so he could learn the industry. But eventually a lot of retailers used to say, make mm-hmm. sure you bring him every time because he's 15 or 16 years old at that time, but he is the consumer that everybody's after. And all of those yeah, brands, yeah, as a kid, all of those brands that I named earlier on when it was appropriate and it was right, when it's family day, kids day or whatever, or, you know, a lightweight day where I'm in there on a Saturday and I'm, you know, I didn't have to be there. I would always take him to work with me so he could be exposed to the industry. So he actually works at a sneaker, a regional cool. sneaker store out here in L.A. called Shoe College. Yeah, OK. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's dope, man. See, it's yeah. just running in the, in the family now, man. Yeah, yeah, and I have a nephew that I hired when I was so at Advanced. And my nephew has been advanced since 2005, and he's doing really well. And he's a product developer over there. And I could 
you know, I got little morsels and droplets of people all over the industry that I've been really fortunate to know. That's that. Hey, you know what? The fact that you, and you, I think you even said it, you, you give back in the sense of you helping others around you. Cause a lot of people, you know, you see it in the sneaker industry. I mean, a lot of corporate industries, they're really self-driven to be, I got to get everything I can get. And I, if you can't keep up, I'm leaving the dust. It, the fact that you're able to spread your knowledge to these, these younger folks and get them to in the right direction, whether it be, you know, your, your son, your, your, your nephew, or the, the kids at the charter school, you're giving them a direction and showing that it is possible because myself as an African-American male, I, I used to work in champs when I was in college. Nice. And everyone say, oh, if you work here long enough, you can possibly like get to a higher position and eventually get to one of the big brands. But I never had personally saw a person of color like me do it. So it was really hard to like stay motivated to do it. So I ended up moving to just another corporate, like just a different corporate job. So that's what really like when, when I was introduced to you by Drew over at Wear Testers, that's what really piqued my interest. I'm like, man, this is someone who looks like me, who lived this entire life and still living clearly in the sneaker world, just navigating. And it's just super impressive and super inspiring from, you know, my, my perspective, man. So, I mean, kudos to everything you do, you've done, and it's just amazing to see. Well, I appreciate that, man. I really do. So, you know, reach out anytime because every conversation I have with someone that is substantially younger than me, I usually walk away with as much education as they walk away with. So, you know, it's uh, it's very important that we just keep the process going because, you know, we're only about, ooh, I think maybe 12 or 13% of the population, but we're actually a much bigger percentage of the population mm -hmm. when it comes to swagger, culture, trends, what we wear, what we do, oh, yeah. how we roll. So I find it almost interesting that, you know, I, I remember, I'll tell you a really quick, I won't say what brand I was at, but years and years ago, I was at this brand and the guy in the audience well, that was in the, you know, that it was a big time meeting, you know, like a line review meeting. And he turned mm -hmm. to the group and he asked us, is basketball and music, do they have anything to do with each other? Man, I had to, you have no idea how much I had to struggle with not like Dude, why are you here, man? Like, why would you, come on, really? <laughs> Who are you? Get out of here. You don't get that. I mean, now, now you understand why you see a lot of shoes that come out and they look whack because you let people like that be in charge of creating things. It's just like for me, if they told me I was actually going to be a rocket scientist right now and you stuck me in a room, I don't think that I'm unintelligent. But I couldn't have had a, have a meeting with rocket scientists because that's not culturally, that's not where I'm coming from. And educationally, that's not where I'm coming from. So yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of those yeah. type of situations over the years in different situations. And I think that's why you see now that people are exposing things and people are, again, to use an overused term, so many people are woke and they're being able to expose people who are not really appropriate for the situations that they were put in. And it doesn't say that the person is not a good person. It doesn't say they're not a smart person. It doesn't say that they necessarily are a racist person, but they have a job doing something that they should not necessarily be doing that requires you to be tied close to a culture. Yeah. And you know what? That actually segues into my next question, like, perfectly. Um, you worked at Adidas. There's been a lot of news coming from Adidas lately about, you know, the way, you know, black and minority workers are treated, how is 
seems like some of the ideas are kind of like stifled or, or taken. Did you witness any of that or firsthand have to deal with any of that while you were at Adidas, even though it was a little while ago? Yeah, no, I did. I mean, but I think, you know, I think it's really important to try. And this is very difficult because racism is a very passionate thing. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard on both sides for people to actually look at same things with some level of objectivity and some level of trying to solve the problem. Because you can only imagine if they're having mm -hmm. those problems. Now, you can just kind of use your imagination of what it was like for people who, of color who worked there like I did in the late 90s. So it was a completely different yeah. era. But I think and this is not to defend them by no stretch, because I think the word ignorance is a word that in America we kind of misuse because we look at the word ignorance as like insulting somebody like, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, you're really ignorant right now. But ignorance, if you look at it in the dictionary, just, <laughs> you don't know. You're just not exposed. You don't have the knowledge. So I think one of the challenges that yeah, I've always received, and this is my perception, this is my experience. I'm not saying this is a fact, but a company that's based in Oregon and the parent company is in Germany, that's kind of a challenge. So you'd have to work really, really, really hard to have a proper representation of multiple ethnicities in a company that's based in Oregon, which has a very, very small black population. And then the parent company is based in the middle of Germany. So I believe, and this, yeah. again, this is just my opinion, that one of the reasons why they're not the greatest brand and they're not what Nike is, is because they're not an American company and they never really did the work to understand how to appeal to the, the African-American psyche. Because once we say it's hot, that means it's hot for everybody. So one of the things that I've always yeah. felt challenged about, and, I, and this is one of the reasons why I, when I joined their company, I was excited because most people don't know that Jesse Owens did all of that work in the 1936 Olympics in Adidas. Wow. Yep. Had he had like some tremendous, yep. yep. had tremendous marketing storytelling abilities that would make him this overused word called the GOAT. Now, we at Ballers World, we use the word goat, but we spell it a little bit differently because at Ballers World, we only believe there's one athlete that was the goat. And that's the person who made up the word, which was Muhammad Ali himself. And you can still be the goat. There's no doubt about it because there's some great athletes out there. But we spell that G-O-H-T, which is greatest of his or her time. Jesse Owens. No, no one I like that. No one even talks about the fact that Jesse Owens did what he did right in Hitler's face. And we talk about people hitting clutch shots to yep. win championships. How clutch is clutch when you're doing that and Hitler sitting right there and you're doing your thing and you winning gold medals? Are you kidding me? So another athlete that comes to my mind is Nothing like it. Muhammad Ali himself, because most people don't know because the storytelling is not there. Muhammad Ali beat everybody up his whole career, whether he won or lost toward the end. It was in Adidas. So if somebody took the time to really, truly tell his story and put some products behind it the way it should be. Wow. Because he is the goat. He's the one that said, I'm the greatest of all time, which is why we use the term. And then the other person that comes to my mind is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, we, you know, certain people that we say has the greatest of all time because they won six championships. And nobody can doubt that because we all know it because it's told to us. But so did Kareem. And Kareem played against Wilt Chamberlain and he played against Dr. J. And he played against Michael Jordan. Wow. 
And he still got 38,000 points and ain't nobody got 38,000 points. And they wasn't shooting threes when he came along. <laughs> shot didn't come along until he was in the league for 10 years. And for the rest of his career, if you seven feet and you're a center, you don't shoot threes because you're never outside the paint like that. So how is it that he has 38,000 points and they still haven't looked at So I could easily put a story together of saying that he's the GOAT. I mean, they, they banned the dunk when he was in college because he was so dominant. And that's why the sky hook became the sky hook, because you couldn't dunk the ball while he was in college. And he won three straight national championships and he didn't win mm-hmm. four because in his era. If you were a freshman, you were redshirted, so you couldn't even play varsity. Wow. And he got six championships, but one of them is with another team. So you can't say it's because he was on the Lakers that he won. He won a championship in Milwaukee and then he joined the Lakers and they won championships. So I look at things a little mm-hmm. bit differently and I'm not as who your favorite player is, is not necessarily the greatest player because he's not my favorite player. My favorite player is not the GOAT, but he's my favorite player. And I think a lot of times people have a tendency of taking their favorite player and arguing that that favorite player is the GOAT. I look at it a little bit differently. Oh, yeah. So and my course, I feel like it's human nature. Everyone wants to be right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's what it's, it's a fun argument to have. But at the end of the day, I usually end up baffling people a bit because I say some of the things I just said to you. And it, and, it's, and those are things that not argue. <laughs> you can't argue Muhammad Ali. You can't argue Kareem. You can't argue Jesse Owens. Those are not arguable things. They just happen to not necessarily be with, you know, and some of those people I just named, they were top of the class in their sport when the sneaker industry wasn't something that was being marketed. It wasn't about it wasn't what it is today. It's a lot different. You know, it's a lot of guys out there that may have been better than some of these goats, but maybe they weren't on the right team to win a championship because up until relatively recently, you didn't have the opportunity to say, I'm leaving and go to another team. If you most of the time when you were drafted by a team, the only way you left that team is if they traded you. So people don't necessarily keep all of those things in consideration when we have what I call the barbershop argument. Because the barbershop argument <laughs> be intense. So, and, and, I, and I have to say, my latest current passion is about sustainability and biodegradability. I'm really fortunate that I work with uh, a company that's based in San Diego, um, a professor who is an amazing scientific genius, but He's actually helped break the code, led break the code in terms of making a biodegradable, renewable polymer, which in lay terms means, uh, and I'll use this just as a simple example, potentially making a plastic bottle that if you throw in the ocean, it will actually return to the environment as opposed to all of the plastic poison that we have out there right now. And I think once we get through through COVID-19 and once we get through this new battle for race equality, we're going to have to turn and deal with that. And that's part of how I've actually tried to contribute to the situation, because I would hate for us to get complete equality of all races. And then once we get this equality, we look around and the planet is all screwed up because this problem with, you know, plastic poison in the world, this this is a major, major problem. Yeah, man, you're you're right on the money with that. And so, you know, that's that brings a good point. With with everyone starting to well not say everyone because it's not true with a lot of people starting to focus more on sustainability with their products especially like shoe brands you got 
uh, Adidas with the, the Parley initiative, you have uh, Nike with the Space Hippie collection. Mm -hmm. Do you think that is true sustainability or is that just more of a marketing stunt? Um, I'd say most of those things that you just named, they're very eco-friendly. There's, there's no, no, this company yeah. that I'm talking about has really truly cracked the code because most of the companies are not that, you know, I'm not trying to pick on anybody's company or anything, but most of the companies, when they say something yeah. is sustainable, is usually some um, single digit, maybe high single digit percentage of their product is sustainable. Where right now, um, our polymer, mm -hmm. our compound, is 52%. So we're about, we're there. And in the lab, we've proven it all the way up at 98%. So this is something that is really passionate for really? me, especially because I'm looking back on my career and unintentionally I've contributed to this problem with all of the shoes that I've been affiliated with over the last three decades. So I think I'm really feeling good about the mm -hmm. fact that I now have this opportunity to, you know, almost get baptized and want to contribute. I'm still making right now because this is something that's so early I'm still contributing to the pollution with the people that I help with right now because, you know, there's a, a, a brand called Kairos, which is a brand that Spencer Dinwiddie, point mm -hmm. guard for Brooklyn Nets, created. And I've been actually working closely yeah. with him the last two years on um, the shoe, which is how we met because that shoe was actually tested by wear testers. And um, wear testers, yeah. is a pretty, they do some pretty strict testing of their products. And... Um, I think we did pretty well because Spencer and I actually worked really well together. We went to Asia together and, uh, I, you know, we oh, toured cool. in, in the summer. So he and I went to, he and his team and myself, we went to Asia, um, went to China two years in a row just to work on his shoe. So this will be the season that we just had interrupted was the second year that he was wearing his own personal signature shoe that you can actually buy. That's fantastic. The, the fact yeah. that he actually took it upon himself and he wants to own something because a lot of people, like a lot of people come to lead, a lot of, yeah, I guess I'm going to say that the newer players are like, oh, you know what? I love, I love Jays. I'm, I'm a sneakerhead. I love Nikes. I wanted to deal with them. But, right. and it could have been the initial thought, but he went forward thinking, like, you know what? I want, I'm not going to get a piece of Nike. They're going to give me a check, but I want to have something I can, passed down to my kids and the kids' kids. And the fact that he took a chance on himself and has put out a product and I haven't seen him like, any anything bad about his shoes. Everything I've seen from like wear testers and other people have gotten a hold of the shoes have said nothing but positive things. And it's mm -hmm. super impressive that he was able to put a team together, you know, work with you, Rob, and be able to put a, a product that can hold his own on an NBA court. When you see People like, I mean, this is an extreme example, but you see Zion blowing out Nikes and you, you haven't seen that from Spencer and his own branded sneakers. So, I mean, that's super impressive to me. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. You know, and I think that's one of the things that have kind of I've been blessed to be separated from a lot of the others in the industry because they don't really know that part of it because the production and, you know, most of the time when people talk about designers, that represents the whole thing. You know, somebody says, oh, that's my man. He designed blah, blah, blah. Yes, the designer is super, super important. Mm -hmm. That's a really special talent that we have to always pay homage to. But it's more than that. It's, you know, the biomechanics is key. Where you source it from is key. 
you being able to develop your product mm -hmm. in time to make it when you already have promised when it's going to be available to the consumer is key. So being a product developer is an unsung role that people don't really realize. And occasionally somebody may mention it. But when you're the product developer, you're almost pretty much like the building contractor when you're building a, a, a skyscraper. You know, are you the one that actually yeah. mixes the cement? No. But if the cement is faulty, it's the contractor's fault. Are you the one that wired the electricity? No. But if it's yeah. not wired right, it's the contractor's fault. So being a product developer, you have to <laughs> yeah. you got to work with marketing. You have to work, make sure that sales is actually can push the product and it's going to be available when they say it's available. You have to then work with Asia to make sure they're in sync with that. You have to visit and go over there. You got to know what you're looking at. You got to know what you're dealing with. And you can see, and I think you've all seen, we've all seen certain shoes that have come out over the years. And you say, oh, see, that wasn't Nike and it wasn't Adidas. It wasn't Under Armour. And you see those shoes didn't work or they fell apart or whatever the case may be. And I was totally determined mm -hmm. to make sure that as he told me when we met, he said, this has to be better than the shoes that are out there right now. And we did the best we could to give him the best possible product that he could have. Nice. So right now, I was I was looking up, you know, Kairos, and I mean, of course, I've seen him on foot. I've seen Spencer do interviews with him. Is the distribution solely on the website now? And if so, are you guys looking to expand into retailers that, you know, I guess once the world's kind of normal again? Um, looking to have the right like-minded retail partner for sure, but we intentionally started that brand mm -hmm. as to consumer brand and uh, yeah. and actually even the, the website itself it has a tech URL because it's you it's dot com but you can actually go to projectdream.io and dream actually stands for disrupt reality every available moment so and that was all just oh, okay. the genius. yeah that was all the genius of Spencer I just you know facilitated and took his crazy ideas and honed them down a little bit because sometimes it's too crazy but you know, as much as we can do to get <laughs> performance too, we do that. And um, and again, at the same time, you know, I consult there, but Baller's World is still super passionate for me. TCGLosAngeles.com is very, very passionate to me. Mm -hmm. And um, and obviously the sustainability thing is very, very important as well, because I think at some point in time, if we don't, we don't want to be in a position of being behind the curve when the most important things come out. You know, I always tell a lot of my friends, it's almost like yeah. that guy sold weed for years and years and years. And once it became legal, he was outside on the outside looking in instead of being on the inside looking out. So you don't want to be in that type of situation. Mm -hmm. Major, major changes in the industry that are very important, because if you're not there, if you're not about what this means, you're going to lose because this new consumer that's coming up now. They're very they, they don't just want to buy your product. They want to know what you're going to do with the money when you give it to them. And you're going to have to. And part of the questions of what you do with it is, are you thinking about trying to save our planet? And if you're not thinking about that, and that's why you see all of these big brands have some position there. But no one is there yet in terms of because it's really about trying to be renewable, because every time you recycle a plastic, when you do successfully recycle it, which is rare. It doesn't have the same integrity as it had when you originally made it, which means you eventually will still continue to mess up the yeah. planet. because You can't just keep recycling the same thing. you got to start and hurt the planet again. Whereas if you have a goal of making something renewable, that means it would really truly be a term that you may have heard already, which would be in the bio loop. Yeah, no, I've heard that before. So basically, 
it's not, uh, I don't know if I had the word correctly, but I guess it's not a virgin material anymore. So when it breaks down, it just doesn't have the same integrity. So once you break down that plastic, it won't hold the same weight, even though it's the same density of plastic, it won't hold the same weight because it's been used and stretched out already. Yeah, you just recycled it and recycled it. It's just, you know, it's so, we don't even really use that term. Yeah. When I'm in that part of my geek world, we, we, we think about things being biodegradable and renewable. Mm -hmm. Now, something you said a few minutes ago when you were talking about just, you know, moving and staying ahead of the curve. I guess mm -hmm. in your your career thus far, when in your mind did you ever, because you've been to different companies, when did you look at yourself in the mirror or just have that moment in your office and you're like, it's time to move on to something else? When did, How did you know it was time for that? Uh, what types of things would happen to make you want to move on to the next product? Is it accomplishment or you're like, oh, you know what? I've done all I can do here. It's time to move to the next project or maybe like, you know, uh, this one is not as challenging anymore. What does that look like for you? It's a good question. And if you, if we were at a, like a Q and a with a crowd, I would have planted you in the audience and said, ask me that, ask me that question right there. So, <laughs> you know, for me, it's always been about, competition and when i've generally went, moved on not every time but my ethos is probably the best way to describe mm -hmm. it is when i'm working somewhere and we take a l and we don't act like we're upset about the l and i'll tell you when i was you know playing basketball which is my favorite sport to play every time i lose which wasn't always but every time i lose i'm usually the first one to go over and dap you and shake your hand because I, I use the energy of me having to congratulate you to get better. So when I see you again, you shaking my hand. Mm -hmm. So certain brands, sure. when we take an L and you don't act like you're mad and you don't act like, well, we, you know, we taking this L right now. We congratulated them. But we got to turn around and get better so we can beat them. When I don't feel like it's like that, because every every person has to understand to be a winner, you have to have lost. I think one of the greatest commercials ever was that one years ago that Michael Jordan did where he said he missed more game winners than he made. It's the truth. Yeah. You just have to have the balls to actually put yourself on the line. And I, I, clearly for me to be a super young man and move to Asia and I had never been out of the country, that means it took a little bit of balls for me to do that. And yeah, that's really right. what. That's usually the point when I say, you know what, these dudes, these ladies, these people I'm here with, they, they, they losers. I'm not I'm not here to lose. I'm here to win. And but he, being there to win doesn't mean you win every time. It's, it's you know, it's, it's almost like a, a Christian thing. What do you do when you get knocked down? You get up again. You're not ready to get back up when you make excuses and everything. No, they just they just kicked our butts. So let's do something about it. And that's generally when I move. And, that, and again, like not every time, because. I look back at some of the places that I left and it's easy to do this. You look back and say, oh, maybe I should have stayed. I don't know. Like, you know, instance, <laughs> you know, when I worked at Vans, the culture at Vans was amazing. The people were amazing. We had a lot of fun. We worked really hard. We traveled a lot. We did what we did and we turned this thing around. And I had no I had no corporate or business reason to leave is just that I had an opportunity to jump back into basketball again. So I did. So that, that's one of the yeah. exceptions, but some of the other places, either okay. the brand was eroding or in some cases I did feel I, this is as much as I can do here and I want to do something different. But a lot of times it was because I'm very rare in the sense that most production people and product development people, they make a whole career of that. 
I love the sneaker industry so much. I've always become infatuated with some of the other disciplines. If you create a really great product and the marketing group is not up to speed to actually market this great product enough, that made me say, well, I want to have some I want to have some influence on marketing now because I know that was a great shit. So that had a lot to do with it as well. I wanted to I've, I've touched almost all of the disciplines in our industry, which is rare. That's very rare. Yeah, man. That's see, that's that's some perfect. I, I, I like that because you it wasn't just the same cookie cutter like, oh, I did this product, I'm out. I, I like the fact that it was very conscious decisions before you did make that change. So I think not only myself, I think everyone can appreciate your your method of your thought process there. Yeah, and, now, and you know, in the case getting towards the end, I gotta oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say real quickly. You know, sometimes somebody came along and recruited me and said, you know, I'm going to pay you a boatload of money. So you need to come over here. And I'm like, OK, because I'm raising a family and I got kids and all that. So that that all had to factor into it. As well. For sure. Yeah. And for anybody who ever says, oh, no, money wasn't a factor, I would have to call them a liar sometimes, because sometimes it is. If you're raising a family, yeah. which, yeah. you know, same here. If someone's like, hey, I have a bag of money coming to this brand. I'm like, I can't say no. So, yeah. So I, I definitely can, you know, be right behind you on that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, as we like, so we're getting towards the end of end of our uh, end of our time here. I do have to ask you. There's two more things I want to ask you. One, what has been your favorite or most prized project that you work on throughout your time? Doesn't matter if it's oh. the sustainability, a particular shoe. What what is your your baby that you will always remember and like pass down to your kids, your kids' kids, and they, their kids as well? Well, you know, my kids have what I what I find as my favorite project and what my kids find as their favorite project that I've worked on doesn't even come close to each other. OK, so a lot of it is not necessarily uh-huh. about <laughs> a lot of it is not about the um, the product. It was about the experience, you know, and the big probably mm-hmm. the one that stands in my mind the most is probably having the opportunity to work with Shaquille when we did the first Shaq shoe, which was called the Shaq Attack, where if you look at that shoe, yeah. it's still somewhat relevant to what's happening right now because it was a lightweight shoe. It was the first shoe to use carbon fiber because we were having to figure out how to make a strong shoe for a guy without making it too heavy because by him wearing a size 20 when he came to us, if we would have built that shoe the way <laughs> a shoe, it would have been just super heavy because he was a size 20 and he's a oversized guy. So it was a lot of things that went in that shoe and it was yeah. just it was it was very disruptive because it was the first time that Reebok had actually acquired an athlete of his magnitude. Because, again, times go by, but there's probably only two guys in the relative modern era that was anticipated in the NBA. And I would argue that Shaquille probably had more hype coming into the league than even LeBron. You gotta get you got you have to give LeBron the nod. I could have planned out from college. Yeah, that's why I so say you may have to give LeBron the nod slightly because he did it straight out of high school. But when Shaquille came in the league, it was game changing at the highest possible level. And um, being able to work with him then probably is something that stays with me the most. But I'm I know I'm disrespecting something I'm not thinking of right now, so it's kind of hard. So I kind of look at the whole thing. <laughs> You know, it's been so many different things like that. But that one's that's the first thing that came to my mind when you asked me the question. Um, and, and, I, and I definitely want to oh, kind of yeah. real quickly. I want to I want to shout my kids out. Because yeah. uh, my oldest daughter, sure, 
is an amazing graphic designer. She has her own brand as well. She's coming up with a sportswear brand. My middle daughter is a nice. real estate mogul. She actually runs the largest real estate team in uh, Philadelphia. Um, my, my oldest daughter, her name is Tania, T-A-N-I-A-H. And uh, Etna's is her brand because her middle name is Shante. So Etna, Shante backwards is Etna's. So you can actually look that brand. And um, my middle daughter, who's the real estate mogul, um, betterthansuccess.com. Check her out. She does run the largest real estate team in Philadelphia. My youngest daughter is a filmmaker, a bass player in a punk, punk rock band. And she's an amazing person. Her name is Joy Renee Purvey. She's awesome with what she does. My son, Derek Scott Purvey, is an amazing writer and film editor. And he does his thing as well. And um, he's... Nazar Scott, you can look him up on Instagram, Nazar like a czar, C-Z-A-R, Zar Scott. And, uh, you know, I always shout my kids out because I love my kids and and uh, they keep me young and relevant. <laughs> you can see they all do stuff that's really creative because for us being creative is what it's really all about and contributing and giving back and trying to help and paying it forward. Yeah, man, that is amazing. Let's say every, every one of your kids is contributing in their own way and that's that's awesome. I mean, being this is a time where you can truly, I feel like, try to be whatever you want to be. And with the tools we have, you know, phones are probably the most powerful computer in the pocket. And you literally you put the work in, you can clearly put the dent and 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 make your own path. So that's that's awesome that your kids are doing that. Yeah, and and that sustainability company, you got to check. It's important. Go to algenesismaterials.com. Yeah. Algenesis. Algenesis Materials. Dot com. Yeah, I'm going to check that out because that, that stuff interests me. I know, you know, Nick and Robbie couldn't be with me today, but that stuff we, we talk about all the time. Um, we love to get into that, that deep dive on how when sneakers start talking about sustainability. So I know for sure we'll we'll be checking it out and keep an eye on that. Yeah, now, hit me up. The hardest question. Oh, yes. yeah. And when, once you like we get deeper in that discussion, we have to bring you back so you can talk about it. Yeah, sure, sure. You said you had another hard question. All right, man. I got the hardest one for you, man. What's that? What What is your favorite sneaker to wear right now? Like uh, no no brand no no brand specific. What What is your favorite sneaker that you're putting on every day, or at least almost every day? Um, right now there's a a brilliant buddy of mine started a brand called Active Eighty Eight. It's a brand new brand. It's a running shoe brand. He's just getting it going. But he actually made a sock liner that was made for my body. So this thing feels amazing. And the name of his sock liner company is called Active Imprints. It's really dope. So I didn't right now I wear a lot. But if I had to talk about something, and this shoe, he just launched his brand recently. But if there is a shoe that I wear a lot all the time, it's definitely anything. If you go to TPPLosAngeles.com, any of the shoes you see on there, because there's a plethora of them, I wear those all the time. For sure. <laughs> that's, that's me. That's me and my boy. We're doing that. And that's tied in TCG, yeah. actually, Baller's World. So you can look both of those up on uh, on Instagram. And obviously, I wear Kairos anytime I do anything active. I don't play basketball competitively anymore. But if you mess with me and we get out there, I will bust people's ass still. You know, I can do that. That's not that's not. <laughs> Got to let them know. Got to let them know. <laughs> That's not a problem. I won't be out for long. That's what's up. That's what's up. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so that's kind of what I wear. And, and again, <laughs> I don't have a brand. So generally, I look at shoes today as what is a great shoe, not a great brand, because every brand occasionally makes mm-hmm. some really good shoes. And I love wearing running shoes a lot because I came in the mm-hmm. industry running shoes with Dominant. Um, I think Saucony running shoes are really, really good and underrated. I still like to wear Hoka a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think On Running is actually on fire. They're coming up right now. I like this. So it's a whole bunch of stuff out there. It's, a, it's really tough for me to answer that with just one singular thing because I'm not a brand guy. I'm an industry guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so you respect the product in the, the actual shoe as a whole. So, yeah, man, that's, hey, again, that's much appreciated because my thing is this. If I'm not getting paid to wear your shoe, I should not have, I don't have a loyalty to it. So whatever I like, I buy and I can, yeah, I appreciate how you say that, how you answered that. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, it's been good, man. Yeah, man, so shoot. Yeah. Yeah, man, hey, I appreciate you. Appreciate your time. I mean, I know it's a little crazy out there right now, but I, I'm glad to have you on. I'm glad to get your story out to, to, to more people. People may may not have heard you. People who followed you. I'm glad you got to tell it again, and then I hope we have you on uh, you know, soon again. Well, make sure you just stay safe, bro, because it's definitely important to do that right now. Oh, man, you too, man, you too. So, hey, you got any Instagrams, uh, social media, anything else you want to shout out for people to find you? Well, I, I, I threw a bunch of them out there, so <laughs> – and uh, make sure you and and, hey, and hey, no worries. Yeah, for everybody out there, make sure you network on LinkedIn too. It's really important. For sure, that is I think probably one thing we don't talk about enough. Yeah. Well, all right, man. Hey, thanks again for joining us, Rob. Hey, Thank everyone, you. stay safe out there. This is this is Mike again with Sneaker History. We'll check you out next time. See you. Thanks for having me. Gone. Oh yeah. What up, y'all? This is Nick again. First, I wanted to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. It really means a lot that you would spend a part of your day rocking with us. Before you take off, I wanted to ask a few favors. If you're looking for more content from the Sneaker History crew, head over to patreon.com slash sneakerhistory. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive episodes of the podcast, our latest merch, giveaways, and much more. You can become a member for as little as five bucks a month, and it really goes a long way supporting the crew. Next, make sure you're signed up for our email newsletter. We share updates about the footwear business, some of our favorite finds and deals, and other sneaker-related news a couple times per week. I like to think of it as a one-stop shop for the sneaker game, or at least a work-in-progress one-stop shop for the sneaker game, if you know what I mean. Last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. Whether online or in person, social distancing in effect, of course, it helps make the sneaker community a better place, and you never know what conversation and opportunity might come from it. As always, we appreciate you, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, And we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.